Hello, ho, ho, and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscape's people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. And a special seasonal welcome to our annual Christmas get-together. We're looking out over the Shapfells, plenty of the white stuff there, fallen just a couple of nights ago. And I'm in the company, as ever, of author and illustrator Mark Richards. Happy seasonal greetings, Mark. You're often uh, a certain red-coated, white-bearded person at this time of year. Absolutely. I've been Santa Claus or Father Christmas again in my local village. Mm, they invited me in twice. What, for the same children to get same more, children. even more presents? Yes, or more presents and more punerisms. Oh, goodness. Poor kids. What what have they done wrong? Oh, yes. And they're all so happy. It's marvellous. I warm to the role. Very good. Okay. Well, we'll we're back in Shap. I think it's our third time here. It's feeling very wintry after that huge dump of snow a couple of days ago. Um, But we've got through. It's thawed a little bit round here. We're doing something rather lovely today, Mark. As ever, we wanted to put a Cumbrian twist on Christmas... And something we've touched on several times in the past has been Cumbrian traditional food, but we've never delved too deeply into it. And we had this fantastic opportunity this year because a new book, The Farmer's Wife, has been released by somebody who you can introduce in a few moments. And it so happened that she was very close friends with a former teacher of hers, a gentleman who has a great love of and great knowledge of traditional Cumbrian food. So we've brought the two of them together in a traditional Westmoreland farmhouse kitchen for what should be a lovely recording celebrating seasonal Christmas food. Who are our guests today, Mark? Well, the owner of the house, the wonderful farmhouse that is the venue for our gathering and our conversation and our feast is the home of Ivan Day, a remarkable man. He's a a polymath of food, of culture, of the nature of his landscape. I mean to say, I can't imagine a more wonderful man to express the history of Cumbrian cultural food. And our second guest is Helen Rebanks, who's written this book for Faber, The Farmer's Wife, who celebrates the wonderful life of working on a farm and the culinary side of it as well. That's right, yeah. I mean, Helen's book, long-awaited, and lots of people are very excited to get it. I think at its heart, it's about food, really, and a, a real passion and love for it. It's there from the start. She's got this lovely memory of making marmalade as a kid goes through when she follows her husband James to university where she starts her own baking business and now it's the heart of the home I think the kitchen for her so she's here with Ivan we're going to get cooking as well so Helen's going to bake one of the recipes from her book we're going to have some gingerbread I think Ivan's going to look up and cook for us some of the very oldest Cumbrian gingerbread recipes and we're going to do a few other things we're going to talk about Helen's life um, about growing up on the family farm and about what it means to be a mother looking after the family and being the farmer's wife and we're going to hear from Ivan about 
that long history and heritage of Cumbrian food. We're going to dispel some food myths, Mark. We're going to ask, is it really true that all these spices came in via Whitehaven? Is it true that the Cumberland sausage is really the Cumberland sausage? And is it associated with German miners? And we'll talk about other Cumbrian feasts, including uh, a pie that has many, many birds in it, including, I believe, a curlew, Mark. So all that and more to look forward to in this lovely Christmas gathering as we go up the road now to seek out Ivan's beautiful, traditional farmhouse. I'm in the midst of a, a traditional old Cumbrian farmhouse in the rather large kitchen area, which is uh, spacious, very definitely, with the wonderful beams above my head. There's two great ranges at either end of the room, both blazing with coal. It's got things in here that will tantalise anybody who's a foodie who wants to know what farmhouse kitchens were like two, three, four hundred years ago. This is a place of action. And in my company are two people who know a great deal about this space and what it meant to uh, the working farm. First of all, the owner of this house, Ivan Day. It's great to see you, Ivan. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself so that listeners can get a, a grasp of your understanding of traditional food? Well, I've had many careers in my life, but my ultimate one, which I've practised for the last 45 years, is I am a social historian of food and its culture. I've written quite a few books and lots of very serious, learned papers on the history of food. But because I live in the Lake District, and I love it, you know, I don't come from here, but I had a, a love affair with it very early in my life. What I'm really enjoying more than anything is cooking a few simple Cumberland and Westmoreland traditional foods for my friends. And this is the essence of all good cooking. You're doing it in a convivial setting to people who matter to you. Talking of people who matter in the context of today, many of our listeners will have remembered we went to Racy Gill to speak to James Rebanks, and the other half of that duo is here today, Helen, who has produced a book recently, The Farmer's Wife, and she's with us today to share some of her culinary skills in this setting. Great to see you, Helen. Thank you, Mark. It's an absolute joy to be here in Ivan's Kitchen this morning. I'm... A mum, mum of four, and a farmer's wife. And I've written about my life and stories in a book that has just come out at the end of end of August this year. And curiously, our connection, Ivan, is that I was an art student of yours some years ago. So <laughs> it's really fun to be in your home and to be here to be cooking this morning. My days revolve around food, feeding the family and keeping the farm going with all the background jobs that are essential. So looking forward to it. Now back to you, Ivan. I'm captivated by this space that we are sitting in the midst of. Could you describe it so that Lister has a visual of it? Well, it's no longer a working farm. Um, I think it stopped being a working farm in about 1966. 
Um, but it had a bit of an issue back in the 19th century because they built the mainline railway right through the middle of the farmyard, dividing the farm into two. The Victorian farmer who lived here wasn't quite as enterprising as John Dunning at the T-Bay Services because he didn't kind of capitalise on it in any way. Um, but this house was not one of the top farms. It wasn't like Townend. It was a tenant farm, you know, their statesman farm. Um, but the arrangements were very similar in terms of domestic life here. There were a few cottages that were linked to it, so there were other families. And the farm workers were often fed in this room, I know that. What we're in, actually, is what was known as a firehouse, which has much changed because the kitchen is always the place that gets modernised first. Originally, there would have been a fireplace, which was a staved oak hooded fireplace, wattle and daub, with a, a thing called a bressum, or a little wall coming out, with a fire window to get the draft in and let the smoke out. In the 19th century, the range that you see there replaced that fireplace, and there was a bit of modification. At the moment, one of the ranges has, has actually got a joint of um, pork, small shoulder of pork, roasting with a clockwork mechanism called a bottle jack. That's in front of the fireplace at the moment. It's got the meat hanging from it and dripping into a tray. What's it trying to achieve? Well, the bottle jack enabled people who had much narrower fireplaces who couldn't afford large amounts of fuel. So the fireplace got narrower and it meant you roasted vertically rather than horizontally because, you know, the boy turning the spit has got this great big long bit with a huge piece of meat on it. But you need a lot of fuel. And fuel was really expensive, especially in these parts. In this house, there were turbery rights. They could cut turf or peat up on Wasdale, you know, near the pink quarry near Shap. And I've still got that on my deeds, but it was completely and utterly dug out by the end of the 18th century, I think. Wood was plentiful, but it was restricted. When the railways came, it meant that they could bring coal in from all over the place, because there was a little bit of coal mining near here, but it wasn't serious. Once the railways came, then coal became the fuel for everybody. And these foundries in all the little towns like Penrith, Brampton, Carlisle were producing ranges. Um, Altham's in Penrith, which everyone will know about, started their life making ranges for cottages and smaller farmhouses and townhouses. Everybody had them and they burnt coal. So there was a shift from peat and wood to coal. It made it a lot easier for people with low incomes to roast, like a subsistence farmer. And that's all they were here, really. It was a tough place to farm. Why do they call them ranges? It's a 16th century word. It just means a fireplace for roasting. The original range was just an open fireplace. And then gradually they realised you could incorporate boilers and ovens and it became a, a thing like this, which does everything. You can roast on it, you can broil on it, you can barbecue on it, you can boil things. I mean, the modern equivalent is a Rayburn or an Arga, which is descended from these. Absolutely. Now we'll turn to a bit of action and uh, Helen, with the uh, various bowls that are in front of me, uh, you're going to be showing us one particular bit of baking and uh, perhaps you can lead us through it, Helen. Yes, so I've decided to make a gingerbread this morning because we would always have a gingerbread at Christmas time. Um, I always like baking because you know what's in it. Yes, it's a lot of uh, butter and sugar in some of these cakes, but it's not processed and out of a packet, which is important to me. So I've set up just on the table here in front of the range, I've got a bowl of dry ingredients, which is my plain flour, some cinnamon and some ginger. And in a pan on the range, I'm melting some butter. 
some brown sugar and I've got treacle and syrup in there. And I'm just warming that slightly and then I'm going to mix the dry ingredients with the wet and I've got a couple of eggs and some milk to beat into that mixture. So it's quite a simple cake, wet and dry, and it's going to go into Ivan's oven and bake for about 45 minutes. Now the particular recipe itself, has it a tradition in the family? Yes, so when I started putting my book together, I looked through my grandma's notes and she had gingerbread and ginger biscuits in there and all sorts of simple things, not many ingredients, and I've used some of those and then I've adapted. I think her gingerbread was mostly treacle, but we quite like it a little bit lighter with a bit of syrup mixed in. So as with all of these things, recipes change over the years according to what the family likes, really. Okay, so I've got the pan of the wet ingredients. I'm just going to put that into a bowl and then I'm going to crack a couple of eggs into this dish. These I just picked out the hen house this morning. They're not laying very well at the moment because of these short dark days, but there was a couple there for me which I was pleased about. And that's just some beaten eggs going there. Will gingerbread have played into your Christmas traditions as you were growing up? Yes, we always used to have tins of home-baked goods at Christmas. Mum and Grandma would both get busy in early December so that we would have plenty of goodies stored up in the pantry. And a gingerbread keeps really well. It's probably best two or three days after it's been baked because it gets a nice sticky top on it. Pouring the milk into the syrup and sugar and butter. And then I'm just going to put the flour in. And then with a bigger spoon, just gently fold it. Swirl round the edge of the bowl and a cut through the middle. And it combines that wet and dry mixture into a cake batter. I think Molly the dog is interested in what we're making here. <laughs> the smell from the ginger and the cinnamon just hits you and instantly you just feel like you're at Christmas time. Scraping the bowl out and there we go. It's as simple as that, just takes a few minutes to put together. Okay, so we're going to pop it in the oven here, just straight on and towards the left hand side there. Great. What's fascinating, having seen Helen create something that is very traditional in many people's eyes, gingerbread. In terms of Cumbria, there is this thought that ginger has much of its roots and Whitehaven perhaps and the fact that spices came in through that route. Ivan, can you give us a perspective on where the notion of spicing up food comes from? Well, yesterday I made the two earliest gingerbreads from Cumbrian Recipe. They're both by a lady called Barbara Fleming who was married to the MP for Cockermouth, Sir Daniel Fleming, and lived at Rydal Hall in the 17th century. And these two gingerbreads date from 1673. We tend to think of the original Grassmere gingerbread by Sarah Nelson. But what that is actually, it's not a traditional Cumbrian thing at all. It was a creation to sell to the tourists. It's a very early bit of merchandising and branding. And it's part of the history of, of this region, but it's not really the sort of gingerbread that was eaten locally. The gingerbreads that I've got here, and this will debunk the Whitehaven myth, because that's all it is, I'm afraid. There are two different gingerbreads. One of them contains, yes, ginger, 
which is an oriental tuba, which comes from Indonesia, which was brought into the Mediterranean by the Arabs and then, then beyond. And it was available from the very early time. It was the cheapest spice because it's like a potato. You know, you get a lot of spice for your money, whereas a peppercorn is tiny and therefore very expensive. But on this um, plate I've got here, I've got the ingredients of one of the gingerbreads I've made. There are grains of paradise, which comes from the African coast. There's licorice, which was grown here in England, and there's anise, which was also grown here in England. So some of these spices were domestically produced. The other plate has got the ingredients of the other one, and that has got ginger and cinnamon, which are still on every larder shelf in this country. And then something that no one will have heard of now, this is called red sanders, which Lady Fleming uses in her recipe. So the question is, if she could get grains of paradise, red sanders and other exotic things in 1673 before Whitehaven was even a dream, really, because it was a tiny little fishing village. It wasn't until the Lowthers developed it. And their main commodity initially was coal, which they sold to Dublin because Dublin doesn't have any coal. Yes, spices did come into Whitehaven in the 18th century. One was something called Jamaica pepper, which is an indigenous Jamaican plant. We call it allspice now. That came in. Ginger too, because in the 16th century, ginger was taken to the West Indies and planted in Jamaica. But I doubt very much whether the ginger that she was using in 1673 came from the West Indies. It mainly came from where it all came from, which was the Far East and Africa with the grains of paradise. So this whole thing is a little bit of a story. Everyone repeats it, but there's very little evidence. It's like a lot of other food stories. It's a lovely story, but sometimes it's not actually true. (laughs) So if they're not coming from the route that people have allowed themselves to believe they're coming from, how are they reaching Cumbria? Very interesting, this one. You've heard of peddlers. The peddler and his pack. Peddlers wandered around, often on foot, selling commodities to housewives in remote farms and villages. It was like the Burkitt's bakery van coming down to the end of Borrowdale, you know, where my wife was brought up. But in those days, a lot of people were going on the pack horse routes, and peddlers tended to specialise in small, expensive commodities which were easy to carry, like nutmegs, needles, pins, sewing thread, which women needed in remote communities. If you went into Penrith or Cockermouth or Keswick, there were apothecary shops, because these were considered to be drugs, often some of them had medicinal purposes. These two gingerbreads were more likely to be medicinal than something that's good to eat. These things often started as medicines, like a lot of our um, alcoholic beverages did. They were medicines I don't know whether Helen realised this, but today is the 5th of December, which is the Feast of St Nicholas. And the association with Christmas is rooted really in Netherlandish and Germanic stories about St Nicholas. And children were given something called a speculas or a speculus on the Feast of um, St Nicholas morning, often in the form of a gingerbread. These like little biscuits created in the moulds, little clusters of beautiful designs. Ivan, can you describe them and taste them for me? Well, we've made these from a a mould which dates from the 1670s, and I've got here a little crown. Now, I made these yesterday, and Helen's been making some today. They need to dry in front of the fire, usually for about a day. There's two different flavours. This one, if I've got it right, is based on almonds with dates. You pound them up together. 
you're meant to pound them for an hour. Mend, I think, is a winter warmer, almost like a cough medicine. So just have a little bit. I love almonds and dates. So It'll be a little bit soft, but the flavour will come through quite strongly, I think. There's a lot of ginger in it, surprisingly. Mm. There is. Like you say, it's slightly chewy. Oh, lovely and warm in bursts with ginger in your mouth, doesn't it? You can imagine a wet day in Rydal. Oh, it's really, really nice. That's the most ancient gingerbread in the whole of Cumbria. I've never found anything earlier than that. Other other examples here, Ivan? Yeah, we've got another flavour, which is a completely different thing. This one here, I've got a little flour here, which is slightly paler. This is made with breadcrumbs that are stewed in honey and ale. The spices here are a little bit more different. They're liquor, it's licorice, anise, and then there's some ginger in it as well. Okay. This is quite a different thing. It's too beautiful to eat, though. No, it's it's not, just so pretty. <laughs> Perfectly formed out of these really old moulds. I'm going to just bite. I'm not usually a fan of licorice, or, but... Oh, yeah. Very different to the last one. Hasn't got that same heat it will have. Oh, dear. Because it's got <laughs> grains of paradise in it. Melagoata pepper, it's called, from Africa. Isn't it mm. amazing that appears in a Cumbrian recipe, That's this incredible. thing that most people, you wouldn't be able to buy it in Cumbria now, you know. Yeah, it's coming through. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming through now. <laughs> Sometimes in Cumbria, these gingerbreads were called pepper cakes. Yes. You know, because of this hot that they had. And people like them because we have a cold, wet climate. Just think of the weather in the last couple of days. And yeah. you live in a house with just one fireplace in it, and it's a way of warming yourself up for mm, It's certainly doing that for mm. me now. <laughs> <laughs> Momentarily, I think we need to backtrack a little bit, because I would rather like to know a little bit more about you, Helen, and your farming roots and background. Yes, Mark, I grew up on a mixed farm just outside of Penrith and my grandparents would go there probably in the 1960s it was a rented farm and my dad milked cows we had beef cattle and sheep and horses and my granddad was a really well-known horseman for his Clydesdales won a lot of rosettes and a lot of cups at all different shows especially the Highland show it was everything I knew growing up going out to get the milk from the tank at the top of the yard being around at lambing time But I wasn't particularly involved with the outside work because we had a man working on the farm with Dad full-time. I helped Mum inside doing a lot of the domestic work. Um, We ran a bed and breakfast. And I grew up with that feeling that a kitchen and a home was open to visitors and whenever there was food, people were made to feel welcome. There was always a cup of tea and when we had our grandmas around, there was always a nip of sherry or something like that. It was a busy house. I think in my early years, I wanted to escape that. I grew up in the 80s and certainly doing domestic housework a lot of the time wasn't that appealing. And I got involved with art at school and I went off to art college and did my degree. And then I met a farmer and things changed a little bit. (laughs) Park that just for a moment because I'm intrigued by that passage in your book where you refer to three generations making marmalade. That seems like it's formative for your love of food. Yes, I didn't really like marmalade, curiously, as a child because I was fed it an awful lot in my packed lunches in um, white bread sandwiches. (laughs) But when I came to put the book together... The first piece I wrote was about making marmalade with my mum and my grandma and I would be about six years old and I remember vividly standing on the stool in the kitchen and the whole place was like a 
sticky, hot marmalade factory, really. Um, Everything was happening. And I wrote about how my mum came into this kitchen of my grandma's. Um, When I was three, we moved to the farm. But grandma pretty much ran the show. She had things that she did at certain times of the year, and that's how things were. And farmhouses were like this everybody had a system of running things but mum didn't come from a farming background so she didn't really know how to manage this big kitchen in the early days grandma was very kind but very firm and my memories of that kitchen were almost like a power struggle going on between these two quite (laughs) entertaining characters of who was in charge because mum wasn't going to sit back and let grandma boss her around. (laughs) Just managing kitchens in a different way is really interesting to me than how we live now. We live with quick food, everything instant, everything accessible all times of the year. But farmhouses were managed in a way that used the produce that was in season, out the gardens and whatever they could get hold of, and they preserved and stored and salted and looked after things and had a real reverence for good food. And I don't think I quite appreciated that as a young child. As I said earlier, I wanted to escape the farm. I thought there was some kind of fancier lifestyle out there for me. But as I've learned about food and the path that we're on in modern society, really, how we grab and go, I've got a real reverence for the old ways, which is why I make marmalade now and why I'm baking gingerbread just before Christmas. I think it's important. Marmalade. I'm standing on a chair at the table wearing a navy blue corduroy pinafore with bronze buckles that my grandma sewed for me and bottle green tights. Mum is hurriedly setting things out on the table. The kitchen is a mess. Brown glazed mason cash bowls are full of chopped rind and the diced flesh of oranges. Muslin cloth bundles, packed full of seeds and pith and tied up with string, sit in bowls of juice. It's nearly time to start the boiling. All other work and food gets put on hold when we are making marmalade. I remember that afternoon as if it were yesterday. It was a few weeks after Christmas, but the boxes of decorations were still sitting by the bottom of the stairs. I helped weigh out the sugar and squeeze the lemons, wincing when the juice hit my eyes from time to time. So many different things were happening at once. Grandma was in charge, instructing Mum on what to do next. I was their extra helper in this big mysterious business. I didn't really enjoy eating marmalade until I was in my twenties. I always saw marmalade as a lot of work and something that involved a fair bit of stress, seeing whether Mum had passed another of Grandma's farm kitchen initiation tests. I didn't associate it with a delicious, tangy conserve from posh shops until much later in my life. I didn't see making it as a process to be enjoyed and as a skill to be passed on. Now, when I taste good marmalade, I'm instantly back in that kitchen with those two farm women. Well, the uh, gingerbread has come out of the oven uh, in the range. It's probably been in there 35, 40 minutes. It gives us a chance to ponder a little bit more about traditional Cumbrian Christmas festive food, Ivan. This is your home ground very much. Uh, Could you give us a flavour of the range of things that people would be preparing at Christmas? 
I think before we do, it might be an idea to point out what every day fare was like for most of the year. It was incredibly plain. The main thing that people grew on their farms were oats and a barley called big, um, and that was their staple. They grew potatoes from the 18th century onwards. But meat was something that you bred to, to make money with. You sold it. So the family tended to keep the poorer cuts. Sometimes they didn't eat much meat at all. Bacon was really important. Preserved meat was the main staple. And not just bacon and ham, and there were wonderful hams made from the Cumberland pig, but also preserved meats, particularly mutton. In Westmoreland, there were mutton hams, which were absolutely extraordinary. I think I made one for Helen and James once. And what um, these preserves were, some of them came into their own at Christmas time. We tend to think, did they have turkey, did they have goose? Well, geese were really important in this part of the world, because it's a wet area. Um, they look after themselves. But after Christmas, they're not much good to you because they start losing weight. So you tend to kill them, usually at Michaelmas. You put them on the stubble, and then some of those stubble geese were actually then preserved. And they used a process which was called powdering. And I'm going to show you how to do that. Um, basically, I've got here some spices... I've got some juniper berries, which is very much a, a local spice, which grows on the fells. Right, yeah. And um, I've got them in some salt with some peppercorns. These are long peppercorns. And I'm going to sprinkle salt all over this. It is a, a goose who comes from a, a mutual friend of ours, a local farmer who breeds geese. And I'm going to put some brown sugar on it as well. Okay, and I'm going to rub all that into the goose and fill it with it as well. And this is the pickle. What will happen is the water in the meat will start to dissolve the salt and sugar and you'll end up with a kind of pickle which is liquid. And what you have to do is to rub that in every day. Turn the goose and rub it in. Have you still got your um, pricker thing that we did the... Which I should have done beforehand, I forgot, was to make lots of holes in the goose. Perforated goose. So I'm going to get Helen to do that. Okay. She's going to do that for me. So this is a traditional Christmas dish. I've got a 17th century manuscript with a recipe for this thing. It's a local one. It's called powdered goose. Powdered means salted. And you pickle it for 19 days, and then you clean it off, you dry it a little bit, and then you hang it in the smoke of juniper wood. So it smokes in juniper wood. It's a wonderful thing. It's absolutely spectacular. It won't be ready for Christmas Day, but it will be ready for the 6th of January, which is the Feast of the Epiphany, which is the last day of the Feast of Christmas, okay? So... That was um, one of the major things, but they did the same with mutton, with pork, and even with veal. There are descriptions in Borrowdale of whole sheep hanging up, smoking in a hooded fireplace, in, in the Hallin, as they were called it. The thing is that Advent, the lead-up to Christmas, was a religious time like Lent, and the more religious people did not eat meat during Advent. It was an old Catholic custom, and it remained here, so you didn't eat much meat during that time. And... The strictest day was Christmas Eve. It was a vigil. You ate no meat. So your first meat meal on Christmas morning was either a thing called a hackin, which was a sweet haggis that was made in this part of the world. It's like a Christmas pudding, except it's got beef or mutton in it. It's made with oats. It's got some spices in, raisins, and grated apple in it. And it was cooked usually in a sheep's stomach. 
There's one um, account of it, probably in Cockermouth. It's difficult to be know which town, but there was a, a custom associated with it in the big houses. In the if the hacking wasn't ready for Christmas morning breakfast, the men of the estate, meaning the workers, would get hold of the kitchen maid, put her on their shoulders, and take her through the town. It was a sort of local custom. It's vanished. It gets replaced by something called the sweet pie. And this is really extraordinary. There is an account in Hutchinson's History of Cumberland, which was published in the 1790s, of a shepherd who lived on Black Coombe above Morecambe Bay, right at the bottom of the county. And he used to kill a sheep every year. He got the ladies in the village to make sweet pies. So they're mince pies. They've got currants, raisins, all the exotic things, spices, you're bringing in dates, figs. And they're the things that you add to all of our festival foods in this country. It sects them up. That's why you've got Christmas cake, Christmas pudding, you know. So this man used to make these sweet pies, and he used to eat it on Christmas morning for his first meat meal, because he wasn't allowed to eat meat on uh, Christmas Eve. But he saved a bit of it until the last day of Christmas which was not the 6th of January, it was the 2nd of February, Candlemas Day. That was the last day of the ecclesiastical feast. So he kept it for 40 days. What a sweet pie is, it's basically the original mince pie, but it has mutton in it, um, as well as all the sweet things. You can hardly detect it, but it is an element in it which gives it a lovely, lovely texture. But all mince pies in this country until the First World War usually had meat in them. The hackin... The sweet pie, they're the main dishes of Christmas Day. So Cumbria comes up first in a way. The earliest record of anything that's like a Christmas pudding is the hackin. It's first recorded in the 17th century, and it's specific to Cumbria. I'm looking forward to having a taste of it. The pastry looks nice and golden. It smells of all the good things of mincemeat, and just to try the mutton in it will be amazing. We eat quite a lot of mutton on our farm. We farm Herdwicks, um, and we found that over time we've tasted hoggets and then we've tried to eat an older sheep and as we've gone on we found it's been the best flavour ever. I made a hot pot recently with a 10-year-old mutton and it was the most delicious meat I think I've ever had. Mature, full of flavour, slowly grown, had a great life living up on the fells, eating loads of various herbs, mountain grasses. We should appreciate it much more in this country, I think. I think it's at its best when it's roasted in front of a fire like the one here. In fact, James and Helen came here once and we did roast some mutton in front It's from your farm, actually. It was from your Herdwick. And Herdwick, basically, as far as I'm concerned, is like the very summit of all of the sheep breeds in terms of flavour. It just is the most magnificent meat we have in this country, I think. I prefer it to venison. You know, it's got to be well looked after on the farm, though. You know, it's got to be (laughs) finished properly, you know. And uh, that expertise is something, there's a lot of it in this room at the moment, actually. I'm not trying to uh, flatter anybody. (laughs) James isn't in this room, is he? No, he's not. There's another pie which was made in this part of the world, as well as the sweet pie, this thing called a Christmas pie. And I've given Helen here an original recipe for one that was made just up the road from here at Lowther Hall, which no longer exists, but it stood where the 
the castle is. And this was made for the famous James Lau, the Wicked Jimmy. And this pie is the Christmas pie. And it was sent to London, actually. I've got another account of it where it was sent to London just before Christmas and pulled down by two horses. And it weighed... Tell us how much it weighed at the bottom, Helen. 22 stone. And I'm just looking down this framed list of all the different ingredients in this pie. And it has 24 different birds in it, ranging from teals to starlings to pigeons, larks, chaffinches. There's a curlew in there. Oh, oh gosh, no. And then there's rabbits, veal, half a ham, three bushels of flour and two stones of butter. Gosh, that's some piece of history right there, isn't it? 1763, this list is from. Wow. So this huge pie is taken down to London in a carriage? Well, in a wagon pulled by two horses, um, probably for consumption, maybe a Palau the family ball supper. These were common in the whole of the north of England, but they tended to be made by the wealthy families. And they were sort of just a show-off thing, really, but sometimes they were profusely decorated. I've made a version of one. I've got half of it there. I've given the other half to a friend yesterday. But it's a freshly baked Cumberland pie, which has got a whole load of different birds in it, but I haven't slaughtered 46 yellow hammers. <laughs> I don't want the RSP throwing bricks through my window. I call it a total extinction pie. I don't think the birds... They, I don't think they sang in the Lowther Valley for quite a few years afterwards. You know. The Cumberland Fair sense here is, is quite remarkable. But we've got another little journey to engage in as well, because Helen, you, along with James, who went to university in Oxford, you travelled down with him, in effect, and found food preparation in a cafe situation, and you became a little bit entrepreneurial there. Yes, so when I graduated with a fine art degree, it was slightly tricky to get jobs that were going to pay the bills. So I was working down there for about three years in different jobs. Um, and I've described in the book how I sort of bumped up with the reality of making a living in the modern world and how that quite often didn't sit well with me. Call centres, estate agents, chasing around trying to sell people things they usually didn't want. But when I was in a cafe, I felt at home and I suggested that I would make the cakes instead of the ones that they were buying in which were all pre-packaged and usually from a factory, and have a go at um, supplying these cakes. So the cafe would be able to have, as you walked in on the counter, coffee cake, almond slice, gingerbread that we've had today, caramel shortbreads, and all sorts of things that I was familiar with from home that I'd grown up making. And it, it really cemented my idea that food was much more than just something to fill you up and keep you going. It's more than fuel because the reactions I was getting from the homemade cakes were wonderful. People were talking about them, they were coming to search them out, they would buy a couple to take home, because people weren't really baking in their homes. And I just thought, here's something that I can do, and it brings a lot of joy. I liked making it, so we ended up doing lots of cakes in the small flat that we rented from the university, 
And I later had a chat with the bursar who rented out this flat and he said he didn't realise I was running an illegal illicit baking business from this basement flat. But it was certainly a good time to look back on. James was studying, I was baking. It was something that I really, really enjoyed. Food runs as a strand right throughout your book. There is this quote that you have, being a farmer's wife has changed my relationship with food. In what way? In lots of ways, really. As I said earlier, I didn't understand and revere the good food that we had on the farm as a child. I just saw it as that was just what we had. I went to the freezer. It was always stocked with our own meat. Black pudding was made in the farmhouse and the milk and the cream and the butter and the vegetables. And I think I wanted to escape it and try all of these things in the supermarket, just like everybody else did. When that big Morrisons came to town, we went and loaded up our trolley and we would buy all sorts of packets of things that made everything quicker, everything faster, and then you could get on and do something else. But as I learned more and been on the journey with James of being on the farm and understanding the importance of livestock and grazing our fields and how that can impact on soil health and trap carbon and the biodiversity around the farm. I've come to understand much more that food comes from healthy soil and good food nourishes us and that it's it's so important. And I think I've always had a love for it and always been interested in what we eat, but hadn't really, really thought about where it comes from and how it can be medicine, essentially. We talked about that a little bit before, but food is medicine. If we're eating good, healthy vegetables and meat that's well-reared, it can contribute to healthy landscapes and healthy population. I think that it's vital to understand these things in what we're now facing is this huge climate crisis we're living through and biodiversity loss, that good farming is hugely important and needs to be supported much, much more than it is. Well, that was fascinating, Helen. You've certainly done a lot at Razy Gill to transform people's perception of the origin of good food. Our transition back to Ivan a moment to uh, challenge a few of the myths of Cumbrian foods. One of them, when we ask people, what's their favourite Cumbrian food, apart from gingerbread, <laughs> most people say, oh, Cumberland sausage. There's this notion that it was the Germans who brought it here and uh, Doe and Ireland where they were lodged. Um, is this a myth? You've come to the right place because I was approached by the Cumberland Sausage Makers Association to help them write the PDO, you know, which is the protective thing that claims that it's a regional speciality. And some of them told me about the history of the German miners who came to Borrowdale to, to mine the, the graphite, and that they came with sausages from Germany. And I said, OK, well, I've heard this story, but I've never seen any evidence for it at all. And there isn't any. There's no documentary evidence. It's a story that's emerged sometime probably after the Second World War. I said to them, well, if they brought the Cumberland sausage from Germany, did they use it as a rope to climb down the mine? And they said, don't, we've got to be serious about this. 
And there is no evidence at all. There's one late 19th century mention of it, just a mention. There's not a recipe until you get to about 1911. Um, there's a Westmoreland sausage, which is practically the same thing. But I did tell them what my theory was. I can't prove it, but I can prove it that it wasn't the Germans who brought it here at all. That's just total nonsense, you know. But it shows how persistent these myths are, because when the PDO was published... They took no notice of what I said, and they still stuck the German thing in anyway, you see. Um, all respect to them, I've got a lot of my friends are local butchers who make this incredibly skillfully. It's a regional thing that I love. I love well-made Cumberland sausage. But the story is quite interesting, I think. If you look at 17th century recipe books from about 1650 onwards, you start to see a recipe which says to make sausages in links. And then all across the country, you're getting sausages made in links. By that, it's a little trick that the, um, the butcher does. There's a little twist and a knot, and you end up with those lovely clusters of equally sized sausages, right. like portion-sized sausages. We've all seen them hanging yeah, in the butcher's shops. That would assume that maybe before the mid-17th century, all sausages in England were made in one long strand as it came out of the sausage forcer. I think probably what happened was that all over Britain, a fad came for making sausages in links, so you get little short ones. Before that, it's very easy to just make one great big long length of it. But there are lots of people who will still disagree because they'll prefer to believe the stories, you know. Well, thanks for clearing that up. Another myth is the sticky toffee pudding, and Charobay in particular as being the source of that recipe. Well, Sharrow Bay was founded by two gentlemen who came up to London after the war with lots of pots and pans and started what became one of Britain's most important country house hotels and a Michelin-starred restaurant. Now, I knew both of them. I ate there a lot in the past and often talked particularly to Brian Sachs, who was the last one to die of the two. They, he told me that they used to go to Blackpool every year and stay in a kind of boarding house with a typical Blackpool landlady and she used to make this pudding that they thought was heaven on earth which was a kind of date and caramel pudding and they claimed that they brought it back to the hotel played around with it and they first called it and this can be ruled out by some of the early menus from there they called it icky sticky pudding it wasn't called what it's called now it was called icky sticky pudding and the trouble is with these things other people come along and go to the restaurant god that's brilliant i'd like to serve that in my restaurant and chefs are clever they can figure out what you put in the ingredient list and they start making it themselves and it it sort of spreads about but i'm pretty certain that um mr coulson and mr Sachs of Sharrow bay did develop the sticky toffee pudding and of course down at Cartmel post office they will dispute that <laughs> <laughs> it's all about people and the linkage between people which again moves me across to you uh, helen of course your book it has enabled you to really explore the backdrop of your life can you give the listeners a little bit of feel for what you were trying to put across in the book it's a story of my life, essentially, and personal struggles, ups and downs as a woman choosing to be at home and raising the children. 
But it's a story of the women that I'm from and I wanted to honour that long history of farm women that have come before me, that have kept these farmhouses going. And in a place like this today, I can just feel the history of work and hands and soapy water and roasting meat and coal. I wanted to describe domestic work in a book and say that it's the glue that holds everything together. It's that invisible labour that we do, quite often women, and it's women's stories that aren't often heard. We hear a lot from women these days if they're outside doing the jobs that men have traditionally done, and that's brilliant. I think women have always worked outside on these farms and been extremely good stock people. But we haven't heard a lot from the women that have done a lot of the domestic side of things. And my life revolves around the children and the indoor work of the farm and the paperwork and the errands and the second pair of hands at busy times, such as lambing or shearing, carving time. But my day isn't dominated by thinking... Where are the cows and what do they need? That's James's responsibility and my responsibility is to feed us. And in a busy family of six, I wanted to share recipes and stories of what that feels like. And yes, gender roles can trap us a little bit. And I think it's been a really helpful thing for me to write the book and to understand each other's roles that bit more. I would hope it would start conversations and certainly readers have been incredibly wonderful sending me messages so far saying that they're seeing their life for the first time in a book or they're feeling I'm describing their day and they haven't read about that before and how important I think it is when I understood the word mundane and the latin roots of that word mundanus of the world that these mundane tasks that we do for each other the caring the cooking they're looking after each other, those little cup of tea in the morning. It is of the world and it is the most important work we can do. And I I wrote the book because I didn't feel it was another book out there that said that these things matter in a world that chases individualism more and more. I'm much more interested in family and community and care. Ivan, can you delve into that um, life of the hidden history of farming women. History basically was made by historians who tend to be highly educated men who left their wives at home and made drop guns. That's why it's hidden, completely hidden. People didn't think it was important. The hero on the quad bike is the thing that everyone focuses on, really. The thing about it is it's a really dangerous history as well because think about the kind of clothing that women wore in the 19th, early 20th century, great big full frock. Can you see the fire, the bare flames here? There were horrific accidents and very difficult to treat in those days as well. So domestic life was not a perfect bed of feathers. It often was a dangerous place, and I think that's been forgotten about. And if you look at the records in the hospitals, you find that the most domestic accidents happened, women in kitchens. It's the women who innovated as well. I mean, the recipes. Nearly all of the early books, which are not printed, they're handwritten recipe books, written by women of the family recipes, passed down to 
their daughter and their daughter after that. I've got one on the table over there that comes from Town in Fum, written in the 1690s by a woman called Elizabeth Burkett. Probably the idea of giving it to her daughter as a way that this little manifest of recipes will jump down through the generations. So they are in charge of a domain that is essential to the stability of family life, really. Women are the providers and they cook the good food. I mean, my mother and my grandmother, Histon Blumenthal, James Martin, eat your heart out. My grandmother could cook much better than you could. <laughs> now we're coming to the, uh, the really exciting part of the uh, recording uh, where the food, the fare, is uh, given the taste sensation. We will try Helen's gingerbread, which is uh, wonderfully set out on a platter on the table at the moment. It's slightly warm, of course, and I'd like to hear Ivan's judgment on it. No pressure. No, no. <laughs> yeah, so I'm just going to give us a square of this. It is still warm. Delicious. Really moist. Oven's done a treat, hasn't it? Mm. I want more of this. Mm. <laughs> that lovely little crust on the top adds to the texture beautifully, doesn't it? This is lovely. This kind of gingerbread was made possible by sodium bicarbonate which originally used to react with the rather acidic treacle, the black treacle, and it produced carbon dioxide. It makes it rise. Earlier gingerbreads are flat. Mm -hmm. They're not aerated. So the ones that um, we were making earlier haven't got the benefit of any kind of raising agent, so they're more like a biscuit, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, To round off this wonderful podcast, Christmas Day food, what would it be for you, Ivan? We always cook our Christmas dinner in this room, in front of the big range over there. You've seen it in action. Normally we cook something like a goose in front of the fire, usually stuffed with um, sage and breadcrumbs and red beetroot. That's my favourite stuffing. Um, And we roast the potatoes, not in the oven, but underneath the goose. So the goose releases its fat. We let it release quite a lot. And then we put the potatoes underneath, it drips on those, and they toast in front of the incredible heat of the fire. They're the best roast potatoes you will ever, ever eat. You'd have to go to another galaxy to find any that are as good. (laughs) I can well believe it. I really can. (laughs) And you, Helen, what would you and James be consuming at Christmas? Turkey is our bird of choice at Christmas. I grew up with turkeys on the farm. My dad did about 100 for family and friends to come and collect and we'll get ours locally. And I have a chef in the family now, my 18-year-old daughter, and she's offered to be involved on Christmas Day. Um, So we're going to prep up as much as we can a couple of days beforehand with all the vegetables and such like and roast up the turkey on Christmas Day itself. It's a similar size to this at home, with the agar at one end and a wood burner at the other. And so it's messy, it's noisy, it's chaotic with four children, with presents and family coming over, but I wouldn't have it any other way.
Well, Mark, there we go. Journey's end. Not really much of a journey. Journey from the kitchen back to where we are now. Did you have fun? Oh, yes. Fabulous. The food was sumptuous, but the conversation, wow. There were so many golden nuggets and none of them were deeply fried. (laughs) Yeah, it was lovely to match equal passions, really. That historic knowledge, fascinating. But I loved Helen's crystal clear belief that she's imparting through that book that good food matters. I think she speaks very eloquently about that undervalued role, domestic role, and the book asks we should be re-evaluating that. Why do we think it's better to be out as the breadwinner, I suppose, on the, on the farm, rather than these invisible hands who keep the whole thing going and I mean really not just in farms I suppose it's households throughout the land isn't it but um, I I loved hearing that marriage of both the food itself and the value of it Uh, I thought that was lovely and really a nice Christmassy reflection isn't it because food is so central to that celebration. Did you like the gingerbread? Well, I love the authentic old one that Ivan prepared, and I love the one that Helen prepared, and I love the way she described making marmalade. And it's that lovely, was like that excerpt, beautiful isn't piece, isn't it? And two beautiful radio voices as well. Coming to the end of the podcast, our usual housekeeping, we're on episode number... 115... For 114 previous episodes, www.countrystride.co.uk. If you like what we do, the best way to support us is either by recommending us to friends or family who love the lakes. Alternatively, you could buy one of our many guidebooks, Country Stride guidebooks. Or thirdly, if you'd like to support us from as little as £2 a month, you can do so via Patreon and you will find the link that on our website again www.countrystride.co.uk we're on social mark x and facebook god dear at countrystride one coming up well it's our end of year review mark you always quite enjoy the end of the year review yes indeed and i gather we got george kitchen as our special guest absolutely yeah so Do join us for our annual review of the year when we go through some of our favourite clips. That will be dropping somewhere between Christmas and New Year. That's it for us. Signing off from our Christmas podcast. Have a wonderful Christmas. Thank you for joining us in 2023. And we're saying goodbye for now and enjoy Christmas. Happy Christmas to everybody and a happy New Year. Um, probably for consumption, maybe at the Lowther family ball supper. Um, there are other accounts of these. And... <laughs> <laughs> we'll, start, we'll start bopping, yeah. <laughs>